are listening to the Distinctive Christianity Podcast, where we clarify distinctions between Mormon and creative Christian thought. I'm Brendan, here with... Skylar. And we've got another one coming down the pipe. Today, we're going to be looking at the epistles of John, the letters of John. First John, second John, third John. Every time I say books and series like that, the old uh, songs that you that I learned in Sunday school classes come back to mind. Yeah, and you know the tune. No, I don't. Yeah, well, there's also a new one that uh, the rapper Shylin. You know Shylin? <laughs> no. You need to listen to some Shylin. <laughs> you really do. I'm just I'm just saying he's uh, doctrinally solid. Rap. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Have you ever listened to any Christian rap before? Uh, no. Man. I, I frankly didn't know it existed. Wow. Really? You're yeah. missing out. <laughs> You're missing out. Hold on a minute. Let me see if I can. I, I wonder if I could get something pulled up here. Just, uh, you know, I feel like I'm having that. Do you remember uh, the era when everybody was getting cell phones for the first time? And the cool thing to do was like show each other your new ringtones. <laughs> I feel like that's what I'm doing right now. I'm like, yo, check out this song. Yeah. Man. You know, or, or like, are you the kind of person? Do you listen to much music? Yeah. Classical 89. Yeah. Sometimes some rock. Are you the kind of person who, uh, who is insists on listening to the entire song? Um, Typically, if yeah. not album. Yeah. Yeah. So you got to listen to the whole thing. You can't, you know, <laughs> I'll make an exception here if you want yeah yeah i i i jump i jump songs every once in a while so i I gotta confess i mean i feel like that's a confession but uh yeah i do i need to show you some some shine lynn he uh so i feel like christian rap went through a really solid era and then things kind of blew up and i mean like it was really good from probably like 2005 to 2017, 18. And then things just started going downhill with Christian rap. And wow. uh, anyway, it was a sad day. Sad day. But there's a lot of like really theologically solid stuff that was that was coming out. I don't know if I'm going to be able to get it pulled up, but that's all right. Wow. Can't win them all. No. Well, I got another, another random question for you today. Let's hope I do all right. Yeah, yeah. If if you were just one particular breed of dog, like you were a dog, what breed of dog would you be? Corgi. Interesting. Yeah, I'd be one of the queens, I should say now, kings, corgis. Yeah. 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 What's the inspiration there? Just, uh, do you like to I'm be an pampered? Anglophile. Do you like to be pampered and stuff? I don't know. <laughs> uh Maybe yeah, I hadn't thought I hadn't thought through that. My one memory with corgis it was uh, I had a coworker uh, several years ago who had a, a like three corgis, and mm-hmm. I was living in Louisville, Kentucky. It was during seminary and everything, and she comes in one day, and we had gotten a decent snow. You don't get actually tons of snow in Louisville. It's weird. Like uh, if anyone's familiar with that region, Louisville's only about an hour and a half south of Indianapolis. 
but there's just something about us being on the other side of the Ohio River. Indianapolis gets tons of snow, and and we used to get hardly any there. But we got like a six-inch snow or something like that. And so she comes in with this video, and they let their corgis out into the backyard and the three corgis are just following each other in this perfect line <laughs> and they were like hopping yeah like bunnies mm-hmm. over the snow and so that's <laughs> my one memory of corgis so <laughs> anywho i i so i'm not familiar with this kind of dog but for some reason i just you know when you just feel a connection mm-hmm. with a particular breed of dog mm-hmm. and i don't think i've ever even seen one of these in real life just see him in pictures, and I think it's something about the name of the dog. But I think I'd go with the Bernie's Mountain Dog. Really? Yeah, you ever seen those? I think so. Let me see. Yeah, hold on. i got to pull it up. Okay. They're, I think they're beautiful. No, I, I think my step-grandmother had one. Yeah. it's uh, And they're big They're big old dogs, too. Mm-hmm. But they just, uh, I just feel like, I just feel like I connect. Yep. Nope. You know? Yep. Isn't that just a pretty dog? Yes. It's a pretty dog. Yes. They're huge, though. So anyway, I'd go with that one. It's pretty cool. <laughs> I agree. Very fuzzy, you know. Just just seems like a dog that you want to nap with. And yeah. that sounds nice to me. Mhm. Anyway, I don't have any dogs. You have any pets? No. I had a pet salamander when I was a kid. Really? Yeah. I feel like we've had this conversation before. Did we? Yeah, Maybe. Just, I can't even remember. Was it just a salamander? Well, I then got some were fire you belly like, toads. You were into repti- reptiles. Or, 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 yeah, amphibians. amphibians. Yeah. yeah. Um, I had Did a white think? tree frog. Then we were just moving too much. Yeah. So I asked my science teacher at the time, Mr. Crandall, if he would take care of, you know, all the uh, amphibians. Mm. And that's where I left them. So you donated your amphibians. Yep. To your to science an elementary. Teacher. Yeah. Just because it was... Just, I thought it was too hard on them to keep move yeah. and move and move yeah. and move. Yeah. You're so kind to your <laughs> amphibians. <laughs> All right, here, hold on. I think I finally got the uh, Shylin pulled up. Let's see if I can. I, I've just. I want to. I want to impress you here. All right. So this Boy. is his album. <clears throat> it's called The Atonement. Um, has a lot of good songs on it. So let me just see and do, let's just do this one real quick. Let's see if I can get this to play. Yeah. I don't know copyright rules here, but we're promoting for him. Praise God the Father, the immortal creator. For your glory you made us, you're the sovereign orchestrator. All that you decree will most surely come to happen. You're awesome as can be, and your glory none can fathom. Wow. Nothing could ever stain you. The heavens can't contain you. We thank See, you. See, I feel like this is up your alley. Son to explain <laughs> you. Otherwise, we would have remained in the dark. I'll have to add it to the playlist with uh, Box, Mass, and B minor. New, adore you. We praise you that you predestined us to be conformed to the image of your son, who's the radiance of your glory. When I meditate on it, the weightiness of it floors me. So, Father, we'll wow. Anyway, that song is called Triune Praise. So, he has a yeah. verse on God the Father, a verse on God the Son, a verse on God the Spirit. Wow. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's good stuff. Yeah, it is. It's worshipful, it's good theology. So, 
Anyway, okay, enough, right. enough of all that. Let's let's get into the material, there we and go. Um, we're going to be looking at First to Third John and Jude, as I mentioned earlier, and the um, LDS wards will be covering these books in their curriculum from November 27th to December 3rd. So, happy December, everyone. We are into the last month of the year, which is just wild. But uh, the subtitle on this lesson in the Come Follow Me curriculum is God is Love. So we are just by way of preview going to spend some time thinking about love and that from a LDS worldview and then do a little bit of comparison and contrasting with um, God's love from our worldview. So looking forward to that. Uh, but we're going to walk through this one just section by section, and there's only three sections in the curriculum this week, and all of them are pretty straightforward and simple. All of the sections in the Teach the Doctrine portion do do a lot of jumping around in the scriptures, so it's definitely more of a, of a topical approach to uh, pulling out some different ideas that they want to highlight on the whole in these books. So we won't be necessarily walking through any particular passages as much as dealing with some of the ideas. So you've got the typical beginning at uh, the top of this where they're encouraging teachers to consider what themes and principles stand out to you as you read these books and how can you use them to help your class members. And then under the invite sharing section, they say um, that the teacher should ask the question, what messages from these epistles were most relevant to the participants and their families? So again, we we just highlight every time the way that this is all about uh, personal relevance and personal experience and personal knowledge and personal revelation. Mm -hmm. And it's not the way that we approach the scriptures when we study the Bible. And that's not to say the Bible's not relevant. It's no. just that's not really our starting point. Our starting point is coming to an understanding of the text and then applying the meaning of the text, which we would believe is objective um, and determined by, again, digging into history and grammar to dial in what the original author was intending to convey to the original audience. And that, in our view, is the Holy Spirit-inspired meaning of the text. So we want to understand that meaning, and then we want to apply it in in relevant ways to our lives even today. But we're working from meaning to relevance and not from relevance to meaning. Mm -hmm. And that's the difference there. And who determines that relevance, too? Yep. Yep. Where's, Where's the authority of the authors of the text? Instead, it's what they can use. I guess they determine what's relevant. Yeah. Based on how they feel. And we've pointed this out all year, too, that hyper-spiritualism mingled with American pragmatism that is so basic to Mormon worldview. Yep. Yep. That's good. Okay. And then we get into the Teach the Doctrine section, and we're just going to go section by section. So let me just walk us through this first section, and then we'll jump into some interaction with it. The references for this section are 1 John 1, 5 to 10, chapter 2, 3 to 11, chapter 3, 1 to 3, chapter 4, 7 to 21, and chapter 5, 1 to 3. So you can see how this is really jumping around throughout the entire um, epistle of First John. And the subtitle that they want folks focusing on is Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ are perfect examples of light and love. So right. that's what they're supposed to be pulling out of some of these texts. Now, let me just read a little bit from a couple of, of uh, sections here. 
And uh, I do want to note uh, just the significance of two verses that they skip when they're encouraging LDS people to look at these because you'll see why, but um, (laughs) so important. But uh, yeah, just listen. This is 1 John um, starting in chapter 1, verse 5, and then we'll read on through chapter 2, verse um, probably just down to verse 5 on this one. And this is from the English Standard Version. It says, This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Now, these are the two verses that they skip, and they tell you tell you just to go straight to, to verse 3. But listen to these verses, which are so critical. Again, this this is the gospel, and these are the verses that they skip because it's not the gospel according to them, and it doesn't fit with what they want their curriculum focused on. Um, and so it's, it's just important to notate these sorts of things. And I, I would challenge you, even if you're LDS and you're going to be talking about this um, this Sunday, uh, bring up, you know, hey, did you notice these two verses uh, that it skips over in the curriculum? What do you think of these? Um, John says, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Okay, so so he is writing to believers, and he is writing so that they would be sanctified, so that they would grow and not participating in the darkness, but to live according to the light which they have in Christ. And so that's why he's writing. But listen to this. He says, but if anyone does sin, and here's the gospel, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. You have an advocate. Anytime that you sin, you fall. If you're a believer, you are a child of God, you're in Christ. Um, the, the encouragement is when you sin, you have an advocate. Jesus is advocating for you before the Father, nonstop, 24-7. Always he stands to make intercession for us. He is our advocate before the Father. Now listen, this is what qualifies him to be a good advocate for us. He's righteous. And listen, he is the propitiation for our sins. What does that mean, Skyler? Well, let me quote their own seminary manual. Of course, they didn't bring this up when it mattered most at yeah. certain points, but they this is how they define it. Pretty good, actually. An atoning sacrifice that satisfies the justice of God. Mm. Notice, satisfies the justice of God. Yep. Now, they might fudge with the word atone. Mm-hmm. They might fudge with the word sacrifice. They might satisfy. They do fudge with the word God. Yep. Which God? And so, anyway, but and, and, interesting. And satisfies. I mm-hmm. mean, what do they mean by satisfies? Well, you're right. I mean, they could play word games with every single one of these. Yeah. But twice in their seminary manual for teachers, they define this term as that. Yeah. That's pretty good. Of course, we you know we covered this in Romans. We covered it on Galatians. That's right. We've almost covered it every episode in some way. Yep. And not only for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. That's the verses right. that they skip over in the Sunday school curriculum. And by this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. 
Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him truly, the love of God is perfected. By this, we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way which he walked. Okay. So, um, yeah, the subtitle here on these texts and on others that they also reference here that we're not going to go through and read all of them is Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ are perfect examples of light and love. They're merely examples. Yeah, they're at of the top of Mount Fuji. Yeah, yeah, according to the last week's right, lesson. they're at the top if, of Mount if you, Fuji. If you heard that, that's what Scholar's referencing there. Right. Um, which is just this idea that, uh, you know, the the Christian life, the gospel life that we're called to is to ascend the mountain mm-hmm. ourselves. And that's what it means to attain perfection and ultimately mm-hmm. exaltation. And so Heavenly Father and Jesus are at the top of the mountain kind of cheering us on, saying, right. you know, I've shown you the way to do it. Now come on and follow after me. Right. Um, which, uh, you know, I, I, not so ironically, I should say, the curriculums, the come follow me curriculum, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, as right man is, God once was, as God now is, man may become. Yep. yep. And in their in the seminary manual, they they actually start with saying we focus on God's light, we focus on God's love, and they actually in the learning activities they have God is fill in the blank, and they're supposed to write down as many ways as they can think of in terms of accurately completing the statement. They include examples of all-knowing, but what do they mean by that? You attain the requisite knowledge to attain that level of exaltation. Yep. All-powerful. Well, based on that knowledge, you then have power relative to that level of exaltation. They don't mean these things the way, uh, you know, if you got Gerald Bray's attributes of God or something like that, mm-hmm. you know, what, he, what we mean historically as Christians. But notice it's, it then it says it's a defining characteristic. And once again, that's why it's so key to see all of this follow their example, follow this example. Yep. The idea is they've attained those characteristics, and we can too if we live it. Yeah. And that, right? It's not a gift given. It's an attribute attained. Christ marked the path, led the way. We see Christ becoming a father as a model going forward for those who stay faithful to the Mormon system. Yeah. And so they go on to say, how can you help those you teach recognize God's light and love in their lives? You might begin by writing the words light and love on the board, ask class members to share other words that come to mind when they think of these two words. Each class member could then study one of the following scripture passages, looking for something uh, the verses teach about light and love. And they give all the passages again. Ask a few of them to share with the class what they found. You could also invite class members to share experiences when they have felt God's light and love. Mm -hmm. You can invite class members to look at a ceiling light or the light coming through the window and share what they know about physical light. How is physical light like spiritual light? Class members could study the following to find additional insights in how God and his son provide light in our lives. And then they give a bunch of references from the Doctrine and Covenants, the Book of Mormon, Nephi in particular, and then some uh, other ones from one from the Psalms, one from First John. And then they say you could also look at this hymn about light. The hymn is The Lord is My Light, which I did look up the hymn this time. And yes. I was telling you just before that uh, I was reading it, and it did not seem like it squares with um, LDS theology. And uh, so you were like, oh, did you look up the the uh, author or the writer? And I was like, nope. So I looked the guy up. Turns out he was a Methodist Episcopal 
uh, member it, back in the 1800s, and so he is writing from much more in the the vein of where we are. Though I'm sure there's still some significant differences with where he was at theologically. But sure, in any case, um, yeah, he's he's he anyway. Well, <laughs> not said there. <laughs> at least on the surface, Christian. Yep. yep. And yeah. then the last um, encouragement here in this section is class members could also share experiences with seeking and receiving spiritual light in their lives. That's amazing, right? So if you don't mind, I want to go through this a little more slowly. Yep. This paragraph. I I have no idea who wrote this. I'd like to meet the person. Okay. So first they say, what do you know about physical light? So, and this is true new age as well, where, it's like, what do we know? Let's just pool our brains here together. Do they have an expert on the physics of light or anything like that? No. Um, so, you know, you might get some new agey use of <laughs> their view of light. And I, I was in classrooms where this was talked about where it's like, you know, well, our cells reflect light and maybe that's where our memories are and stuff like that. It's like a Oprah Winfrey, you know, very new age. Mm-hmm. It's very new age. Um, now if it's about the metaphor of what it means, that'd be one thing, but that's not what they say. What do we know about physical light? Then they say, how is physical light like spiritual light? And I just want to point this out, that physical spiritual distinction. I don't know what they're doing with that because according to DNC 131, there's no such thing as immaterial matter. All spirit is matter and we can't see all of it because our bodies are not purified, but Apparently, when you get to the level maybe of Christ or maybe his uh, heavenly father, we shall see that it is all matter. That's verse 8 of DNC 131. So there is no spirit matter distinction Mm -hmm. um, in Mormonism to be had. And once again, they're not making clear that they're speaking metaphorically here. Then they continue on and notice who they don't mention. They mention additional insights into how God and his son provide light in our lives. Remember the Holland talk? I thought the Godhead was unified in every way but substance, but being. But they they didn't mention the Holy Ghost here. What about the Holy Ghost uh, providing light in our lives? No mention. Yeah. So there, <laughs> okay. Um, now, interestingly enough too, notice the light that they're providing is something apart from them. And this is, goes back to a distinction we've made, I think, from the first episode, even though they're not always clear on it, and LDS surely aren't. But I'm telling you, the light of Christ, Boyd K. Packer, even the Gospel Principles Manual, if you look up all the stuff they say about the Holy Ghost, it is not the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. The Holy Spirit is also called the light of Christ. It's in the, even the section 88 that they cite right underneath is about the Holy Spirit. It's immaterial, it's, sorry, it's impersonal. It's, it's what is the power behind the sun and the power behind the light and the power, the light that lighteth every person. Right. And so they could have said how God and his son and the Holy ghost provide light in our lives, but maybe that would be too confusing because so many LDS, instead of taking the opportunity in the teach the doctrine section to make clear this distinction, uh, they don't. And notice that the light that's provided is something that is not them. <laughs> See how it's impersonal and apart, and therefore, just as they partake in that light, maybe they can help us partake in that light. I was trying to think of a analogy, right? Think of like uh, if I get paid and I can Venmo you for lunch, mm-hmm. right? 
Maybe that's how they're thinking of this light. Whereas that's very different than these same passages in which is talking about talking about God being love. God is light. Um, that we'll get to, to more in a minute. So, in that, and you can see that here, class members could also share experiences with seeking and receiving. Notice the order: you have to seek, and then you receive. Mm-hmm. When the incarnation—that's even John says—I touched, we touched him, right? I mean, were they seeking? No. Yeah, that was the point. Yeah, we were not seeking, and God sent. It came in and as his son, right? Yeah, yeah. And then, once again, spiritual light. Not him, not the son, not even the Holy Ghost. Spiritual light, Holy Spirit. I mean, it's it's <laughs> this is a convoluted yeah. mess. I hope every listener can hear that this, instead of taking the opportunity to clarify all this and make their own doctrine clear to their own members, instead, ironically, they're kind of confusing their own stuff. Mm-hmm. Then they use a Christian hymn, it comes from our worldview. That's the same worldview as First John, which makes sense. Yeah. And yet, all of the accoutrements that actually come from the fifteen prophets, seers, uh, fifteen prophets, seers, and revelators yeah. of the one true church, supposedly. Yep. They yep. can't. They don't do it. And it's uh, normal to what we've seen. It's all just kind of uh, watered down to be more focused on feelings and mm-hmm. experiences. You know, even just the bit at the end there, you could also invite class members to share experiences when they have felt God's light mm. and love. So it's it's just turning turning it into these sort of inner feelings and experiences once again. And I'm just reminded, uh, you know, in particular, as we pointed out over and over again, of the danger of this way of knowing what is apparently true or not true or what is light and not light. And uh, reminds me of even a conversation that I had a few months back. I may have mentioned this even on the on the podcast at some point in time, but where I was just asking someone, you know, how, how do you how do you know really like what is true or whether it's true or not true? And it's always this: I know, I know, I know, I know, I know beyond a shadow of a doubt. I know that this is true. And I I just said, but really, like, how could you distinguish between? Um, a feeling or experience that is from God versus one that is from Satan, you know, and, and the thought was just in the words that were even used where, you know, the difference between light and dark, you know, and, and things like that. And I, I would just remind everyone of second Corinthians 11, where Paul says, and starting in verse 12, and what am I doing? Uh, and what I am doing, I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission, they work on the same terms as we do. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. So Satan himself is described by Paul as one who, in his deception, uh, visits people as an angel of light, you know, and so you can't just go off of this kind of bare understanding of I I know based on these feelings or this light that I've received. The point is that the light is God, and you know what the light is by coming to know Him, and that comes through His revelation from true apostles, like what Paul is, and not through these false apostles who come in the deception of righteousness mm-hmm. and come in the deception of looking like they are 
people perfect. of light yeah. and perfect and things like that. But successful. Yeah. But yeah. instead it comes through that the true apostolic witness. So the issue here is is that Paul is a true apostle. And so his teaching ought to be trusted and not these guys, no matter how good their life may look, because Satan himself comes disguised to people as an right. angel of light. So it's no surprise that those who are workers of Satan can come looking really good as as well. So just as bare encouragement of sharing experiences of times that you've felt God's light and God's love. Well, as we've been pointing out over and over again, God's light and love mm-hmm. is the essential component to whether or not you're talking about what is true there. And that means that you need to understand who God is Mm -hmm. through the light that he has provided. Um, You know his love through his objective revelation of himself in in the word. Um, So there's some helpful stuff on this that I found in a, in a commentary by Daniel Aiken that I think may help just start to present a little bit more of a evangelical worldview and interpretation in how we would deal with this. And one thing that Danny Aiken I think does really good in his commentary is he goes back to the Gospel of John to try to understand how John typically will use these sorts of uh, words when it comes to light and love and things like that. And you may recall at the beginning of John's gospel in chapter one, John writes, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. Okay. In him was life. Now listen to this. This is verse four, John chapter one. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, and that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and yet the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him and believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of man, uh, nor the flesh, nor the, sorry, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And then, of course, chapter 1, verse 14, and the word became flesh and, the, and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glories of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So, that's such a critical mm-hmm. passage, obviously, even when it comes to our Christology and getting Jesus right. And we walked through that when we were walking through some of these uh, topics um, in the Gospel of John. But just listen to how Danny Aiken comments on some of this stuff in a way that I think is really helpful. He says, that light represents the source of life would seem to fit best with the biblical data. Okay, so that light represents a source of life. That's what he's trying to show is, is John talks about light. What he's really referencing is the light is the source of all life. He says, John identifies the self-existing life of the word as the light of human beings, i.e. the word's life equals human beings' light. Light, in turn, represents the source of human beings' life. In the word, this is a quote from that passage, in the word was life, and that life, which is in the word, is the light, or in other words, the source of life of human beings. John 1.3 would essentially be emphasizing the agency of the word, which is the divine Christ, 
in the creation of all that exist. So th- th- this is what he's highlighting here. Jesus is the one who created all, all things. The second person of the Trinity, the eternal son of God, the word, he is the creator of all things. And that's what the light and life play is coming from. That um, he, he goes on to say, and one forward be insisting that the word who is life in himself. So life is in the word. Jesus is life. He's the source of all life. That's who he is. Is the, he's the, is the source of all derived human life. So human life comes through the son of God. Understood in the context of creation, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness does not overcome it. This is John 1, 5, would refer to light, the source of life from the source, capital S, S-O-U-R-C-E, of life, giving derived life in creation. And God said, let there be light. Where? Genesis 1, 3. God said, let there be light. Since the word was with God in the beginning, John 1, 1, and shares the same essence with God, John 1, 2, he shares the same self-existing life as the Father. The word's self-existing life is, in turn, the light, or in other words, the source of life of human beings. In effect, God's command in Genesis 1, 3 to reveal light was a command given power by the self-existing life of his word, capital W-O-R-D to create derived creaturely life. So in other words, God the Father is uh, is is having the Son create creaturely life as the one through whom all self-existing life is present within. And so the creation is an overflow of the life that is eternally in the Word. With the self-existing life of the word, the source of the creaturely life. Now listen to this. Note the care with which John frames his theological proposition. Human beings derive their life from the self-existing life of the word. Yet the life of human beings, so important, is derived and not identical to the self-existing life of the Godhead. And so the point is that as John plays with this sort of metaphor, he is talking about Jesus as being light, meaning that he is the source of all life, and that life can be found, humanly speaking, creaturely speaking, only in him. And this becomes a theme that runs all the all throughout the uh, the Gospel of John. God, uh, John chapter eight. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, "I am the light of the world. I am the light. That, that's who I am. I am the light. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of what." of life. So if you want to have life, both physical life and spiritual life, life is only found in the Son of God. It is only found in Jesus. And really, the Pharisees were picking up on the claims that Jesus was making here, because if you are familiar with John chapter 8, the end of that chapter is where they were picking up stones to kill him, because they understood that he was blaspheming, making these claims that he is the light of the world. He is the one, in other words, who spoke all things into existence by the power of his word, by his own power, by his own person, by his own being, all things that exist in a creaturely sense exist. They exist in Christ by, through, and for him. And so the claims that John is making when he's talking about God, the Son, Jesus himself being the light 
of all men is a, is so much deeper and more beautiful theologically than just the sort of comparisons that you see happening in the LDS curriculum here. How's physical light like spiritual light? You're getting the wrong comparison there. The comparison you should be looking into is how does this light, which is God and in him, relate to the life that John is articulating we ought to be living in in 1 John. Mm-hmm. You know, this whole book is about living a new life, a, a life that is in Christ, a, a life as this new creation. And uh, just a little bit more here from Aiken. He says, God is light. This is him commenting on 1 John now. God is light means that God has the quality of being the source of life. Further, in emphasizing that in him there is no darkness at all, i.e. no lack of life, John asserts that God is the fullness of life itself. He is the ultimate source of life. And uh, anyway, the the declaration that's being made here, um, let, let me just read, the negative declaration maintains that claims to fellowship with God are inconsistent with living in a state of death. That's the point. If you're saying that you have fellowship with God, you can't live in this domain of death, the domain of darkness, the state of lifelessness. And the positive declaration that John is making asserts that only by living in the fullness of life, which is revealed in Christ, as God is fullness of life himself, will one have fellowship with God and the forgiveness of sins through the atoning death of Jesus, his son. And you see how all of that correlates and fits with the whole message that's going on in First in John. The, the point is, and go, go look up how light and darkness is used throughout the scriptures, what you're going to find is there is associated with darkness the judgment of God uh, toward the world and the domain of darkness. There is a, the, a sort of lifeless void that all mankind lives in, and God delivers his own people, his own children, out of that darkness and into the light. And what that means is he delivers his people out of death and into life. And that's the theme that is going on even in John as he's trying to articulate all these great truths about not sinning anymore, not living according to the death that we used to be in when we were of the darkness, but living according to the light now that we have the life that we have in Christ because of what he has done, the propitiation that he has provided to pay the ransom for our sins so that we can be set free and live in life um, as creatures the way that we were intended to to do. Um, so anyways, that's a rant. I don't know what else you want to add there or... I, I have run with to, in a different direction. Yeah, I have stuff to say, but I think it will tie into this next section and I'll just build on it there. Yeah, that sounds good. Okay, so the uh, second section that we're looking at here is again, we must abide in the doctrine of Christ. Um, and they're looking at 1 John 2 18 to 28, 4 3, 2 John 1. Uh, 7 to 11, and then 3 John 1, <laughs> all over the place, 9 to 11, and then they reference the whole book of Jude here. And the subtitle, again, is We Must Abide in the Doctrine of Christ. They go on to say, The teachings of John and Jude about apostasy can help class members consider how to keep their faith in Jesus Christ strong. Consider inviting half of the class to search for descriptions of false teachings and apostasy in all these different verses, and the other half to search for such descriptions in Jude. Or they could look for answers to questions like these. How did John and Jude define an antichrist? Then they say you can look at the guide to the scriptures on antichrist on the website. If there 
Uh, is there anything in these verses that seems especially applicable to challenges we face today? What does it mean to abide in the doctrine of Christ? Jude uses interesting imagery to describe false teachers or those who speak evil, those things which they know not. You might have invited a few class members to draw on the board some of the images that are described, while other class members guess the phrase the person is drawing. How do these images represent false teachings and antichrists? For example, how do corrupt practices create spots in our feasts of charity? What can we do to fortify ourselves against mockers? We might, or why might Jude have suggested that we have compassion on those who mock the gospel? Yeah, well, and just even that line about mockers. Notice they don't define what's the, what is the mockery based on, mm-hmm. right? What I mean, it certainly, surely, um, anything that's silly and therefore mocked isn't evidence of it being true. I think politics the last few years should probably prove that. Yeah. And so, <laughs> in itself, um, that's just, uh, to me, it's just, well, do you feel mocked, you know, by all the critics of the church, whether they've left the church or Christians from the outside dealing with it? Right. Um, and that can be interpreted as, oh, that's evidence we're right. It's like, no, 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 no. They're playing into a human psychology that's not bent, you know, not a bent toward truth, but a bent toward group, uh, in-group dynamics, yeah. right? Uh, fortifying the border between us and them. Mm. And so that's horrible. Well, back on the first paragraph, though, notice the teachings of John and Jude, what are, their, what are they there for? Mm-hmm. To, th- to help us consider how to keep our faith in Christ strong. See, there's the faith distinction. Yeah. <laughs> it's not, right? The, the goal is to keep my faith strong. You see that? Instead of focusing on the object of the faith who can save even someone who has faith the size of a mustard seed. Mm-hmm. The, the focus is not the object, but the subject. Which, and then they, they then do do some good things here. I was just like, this is, this is good. Do this every time. Yeah. Search for their descriptions of false teachings and apostasy. Yeah. We agree. And then they cite actually the text that matter. And they don't mingle it with Book of Mormon and DNC. Yep. This is the first time ever, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> and true. then they say, um, how do John and Jude define an antichrist? Now, then they say, look at how we interpret it. But, mm-hmm. but still, yeah, the context, yes, and it should be what John and Jude say, yes. And then, and then they jump to application. So it, it is possible to do this. Um, <laughs> but then, you know, then they go on and you know, kind of ruin it. But still, um, it, what was... It, the seminary manual did not even do this, which is interesting. So it's the seminary manual for teachers on this. And uh, just a quick overview, and then I do have some thoughts on this section. Um, the first um, thing is that this is, in, they do mention the Gnostics in the manual, um, which is interesting. They don't just say the Docetists, which would be what I think most of our commentaries would discuss, right? They might discuss how Docetism relates to Gnosticism, but it's not true that uh, all Docetists were Gnostics. Um, and we'll, I'll get to that in just a second, but they, they, they say that some church members had adopted beliefs from a group called the Gnostics. This group taught that Jesus did not have a physical body and that salvation came through special knowledge 
rather than through faith in Christ. That's literally what they say in the manual. Now, this is an example of how you can weaponize sloppily worded contextual footnote. Um, because it, it what okay, what is what is it that John is worried about, right? In fact, this ties to the definition of Antichrist. Those who deny Jesus has come in the flesh, right? How does it say it specifically? Yeah, who's the liar um, but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? Yeah. This is the Antichrist, who, who he who denies the Father and the Son. Okay. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. And he says, let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. This is the promise that he had made, has made to us eternal life. Okay, yeah, and it, um, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Um, so here's part of the problem with this limited contextual point. It's not fully accurate, like I said already. Also, I think rhetorically, this is how it can function, and it's, it's un- <laughs> is if Gnosticism is limited to Jesus not having a physical body, and that salvation comes through special knowledge. I'm surprised they included that because of the Mormon emphasis on special knowledge. Rather than through faith in Christ, of course, they redefined faith to fit salvation coming through the special knowledge as applied in the church through their works and their ordinances and their priesthoods and all that. Mm-hmm. Um, but if that is how it's defined, then Mormonism would not be included, right? Because Mormons are fine confessing Jesus. <laughs> Think, why is John needing to say this if the Mormon worldview is correct? <laughs> yeah. If all gods have bodies, and that's the teaching of the primitive church, and this is one of his apostles, why is he so worried? Well, because this, what, what Mormonism does is, in a sense, worse than what the Docetists do. What is the, the Docetism? It, it, it comes from a Greek verb meaning to seem or to appear. Right, and the confession is Christ is not human, but a phantom. Right, he just appears to be human, um, and the the thing is, is the the assumption is that God is not a man, and God is spiritual, not physical. Um, indeed, God is not limited the way we are at any level of human progression as well. So. So on one hand, right, in the first verse, right, we have seen with our eyes, we've looked, we've touched with our hands, right, Christ. And, um, and yet, in the same letter, right, he will say, no man, no one has ever seen God. So how do you balance those? Well, that's why we have to get our Christology right in terms of who this Christ is, this is the same John that said in the beginning was the Word, the Word was God, the Word was right with God, and the Word yep. was God. So this is, this is the thing that the Docetists, they see Jesus um, die on the cross. That's the most obvious. And so they're in some way trying to distance the divinity from the humanity, and that will lead to a splitting of Jesus and Christ. And you see this today. Uh, this has not gone away. So uh, there's two ways docetism can come through. It, it can be that he appeared to be human in a tangible way, but with a luminous or ethereal body, um, but it just wasn't human. 
Um, so a quasi docetism. Um, the pure, the more pure docetism is just straight up denies corporeality, uh, denies any sort of material element to Jesus Christ. And uh, what they both confess is the the phantom aspect, the illusion, the form, the appearance part. It, the, the apparent humanity is a disguise. And so why, why would there be an incentive to do this? Well, I think this gives a great insight into what we're dealing with with Mormonism, right? The, the, the best thinking of the time um, would see that, no, 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 God as a necessary being must be immutable, good, eternal, and impassable. And what you see, if the word became flesh and you see the material world as not just uh, distinguished from the spiritual world, but a dualism that separates, never the twain shall meet. Saying the word became flesh is almost like saying, in a platonic sense, uh, good became evil. Mm-hmm. I mean, and, and of course, this is a low view of the body, all that. And so if you see Jesus having emotion, well, that's mutability. So you got to distance the divinity from that. Um, the, if you see him changing in time, if you say, conception, birth, of course they're going to say, no, 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 no. Maybe he just appeared at some time later. So you deny any sense of him being born. In fact, being born itself, uh, you know, the evidence we have from some of this as it develops later is that he could not, you know, God could not be begotten, right? Because that would imply someone being created, mutable, corruptible, even mortal. So the, and this is, this is all, going to then tie to their view of themselves. But what's key to see is that Mormonism, in a sense, is the inverse. In, in, in other senses, it's a more radical departure. They have humanized God. It made the point of contention, and of course. Whereas John affirms, right, what we have in the biblical witness, Genesis to Revelation, is God is immutable, good, eternal, impassable, right? And yet that God took on the word tented, you know, the, John one fourteen, And so we affirm the full, the true divinity of Jesus, unchanged, and the true humanity of Jesus that did live a human life as we lived. But once you can't accept that, it leads to other things. So, for example, a quasi-docetic, it, the body's just useful for the spirit. Mm-hmm. And this would lead to hedonism. Whereas the purely docetic, they are body deniers. And this leads to asceticism, like vegetarianism, all that stuff. You could say the word wisdom. Uh, both belittle the body as well as social good. Um, in the sense that this material world, no, no, no we, it, it, salvation is in some sense an escape from the material world. Um, so why would uh, feeding the hungry, helping the poor, you know, good works be a part of the Christian life? At all, and here's one point that I thought I think is interesting that I haven't seen connected to Mormon studies. Um, Joseph Smith, being an American Gnostic, but once again, everything's material. Instead of the spirit, the dualism, what they have created is a different kind of monism with the Gnostic progression scheme being within the material, and that's that is a huge departure from the Platonic forms of Gnosticism that are more. Uh, relevant in Christian studies, typically. But the same features are there. So for those who don't know what Gnosticism is, and it refers to an experiential knowledge that's internal to somebody. 
Uh, typically, it's, it's a combination of mysticism and a certain form of philosophy that sees true divinity within and therefore experiences as a way to, quote-unquote, know things. They tend to emphasize ritual. Um, they tend to emphasize secret knowledge. And based on this, more and more it's about progressing through the cosmos back to the God who's higher than the God of this world. Um, that's the dualism, right? The, 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 they called the God of the material world that they saw as the cause of evil because of the evil we experience in the world. Um, who is the God of the Jews? They would say is the Soklos or the blind fool. The, it's horrible. And, or they would make fun of the name Yahweh called Yadaboth. It's a, it's a way of kind of mocking it like Jimmy, you know, instead of Jim, Jimmy, Jimmy boy. Um, because if they're spiritual, truly the spiritual ones, and they have a three-tiered system, you almost three kingdoms of glory kind of thing. You got a spirit, the spiritual ones. These are the true Gnostics. Then you have the soul people. These are the religious people. They need the, they need the stories, you know, to follow the rules, and you know they make the world run, whatever. And then you have the the sarkakoi, the the flesh ones. These are just the silly hedonists. They don't think about anything. They're not really spiritual. So they're just like animals. <clears throat> You have a three-tiered system, and of course, um, you will have forms of it, like with Valentinus, that emphasize love, 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 love uh, stuff. But they might even emphasize the cross. But it's about um, knowledge of self, and the more you learn about God, the more you learn of yourself. Um, and Jesus is a Gnostic teacher, kind of thing. Now, here's sorry. Here's the point that's most interesting to me, that's often overlooked. We've covered how the Book of Mormon is not Trinitarian, but modalistic. Most people miss how docetism inevitably leads to, to modalism if you're going to maintain monotheism. So you can have a form of docetism that just envisions Jesus as a lower deity. But then if you're, if you're still committed to, the, to one God that has all of these attributes of a necessarily existing being, then, of course, you can't have Jesus being a separate person, Right? And so, the you you deny the humanity, maybe in terms of its time, you know. So, tr the Trinity, of course, one God, three persons. Whereas modalism is God, the one God as one person in three modes or with three names, and therefore the Son is only a manifestation, maybe of the Father or of God for a time, and therefore if you if you tie that to the Docetism that that denies full incarnation or full humanity, then um, it, it works in a way to preserve monotheism. Of course, not faithful to the scriptures, neither as the Book of Mormon wasn't faithful to the scriptures. So when we say generation, for example, they, they think, oh, that means you, know, you start in time or mutability. They over-humanize it, right? Whereas for us, it's eternal generation. That's the real image of which we get little glimpses in how humans operate as uh, persons made in the image and likeness of God. And so we see it as eternal generation that, you know, Christ as one with the father is eternally generated. If there's a father, there's a son there. There's, you don't have a time where they were not in that relation and then begotten does distinguish him from the father, right? John is very careful. The gospel is very careful to distinguish. We do, we do not like the book of Mormon does or how Joseph Smith translation forces it in the new Testament say Jesus is the father and the son. Mm -hmm. So here's the, here's how it can play out again is 
it will emphasize the spiritual part of a person over the body. The body is a useful means, if if useful at all. And it'll lead to this imbalance of the extremes of hedonism on one hand and asceticism on the other. That's kind of relevant to this culture. Yeah. And then it's going to either overemphasize um, works or belittle them. So I really like how one scholar ends this, and then I'll kind of wrap this part up, is whereas the Orthodox incarnation teaches of the divine son that comes into the world of people, docetism teaches of the removal of people from the world, and with that, the removal of all responsibility towards one's neighbor. And um, though once again, this doesn't match exactly on to the scheme, but in some ways it's even more dangerous. Where John can say, I, we touched, touched him, uh, but no man can see God. Trinitarian uh, understanding holds those together. Mm-hmm. Whereas for them, they have to over-lean into one, play off what is extraordinary in the incarnation as normal, and then completely deny as a wrong translation or corruption or you know scribes adding in that no man has seen God. Yeah. They don't have a God. That's really the... <laughs> they don't have a transcendent being at all. And that's why when they say words uh, like you know, all-knowing, things like that. You have to see them in their proper context. Yep, and obviously that's even just relevant to this section and understanding the the false, the nature of false teaching and the nature of apostasy, you know, is tied to making sure that you're maintaining a right confession of Christ, the true Christ. And John, uh, of all people, has focused much of his writings on making sure that the the Christians' Christology is proper, that they're getting these things right. And so um, it's just a, another thing to consider, you know, if you're LDS and, and you're working through these different um, books of the Bible and even just First John, um, are you abiding in the true doctrine of Christ? according to the Apostle John, um, as he has written it, or some other variation that has gone off in the same way that you would expect false prophets and false teachers um, to go off into these sorts of things. So um, just just some thought. Yeah, um, absolutely. All right, anything else on this section, or just hit the last one real quick? You just notice that in Jude they don't mention, you know, contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Once for all delivered to the saints. Instead, they tap it on the end. Don't cover it all in the seminary manual for teachers and, t- and limit it to abiding in the doctrine of Christ as they define it. Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay. So the last section we have is covering 3 John verses 1 to 4. Uh, might as well read this one because it's a shorter one. So first or 3 John verse 1 to 4 says... The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you, that you may be in good health, as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. And then the... Uh, subtitle in the LDS Come Follow Me curriculum is Joy Comes as We Help Others Walk in Truth. 
And they say, this is a short section, so I'll just read it. There are probably people in your class who can relate to what John was feeling when he said that he had no greater joy than to hear that Gaius, one of his quote-unquote children, was walking in the truth. Class members might benefit from hearing each other's experiences. Maybe you could start by reading together 3 John 1, 1 to 4 and the scriptures and additional resources, and they do lift, uh, listen a number of, again, Deuteronomy, Proverbs, John, how, how crazy they list Deuteronomy 6, uh, it, it's 6 unreal. to 7. Forget the Shema. Skip that part. Yeah. <laughs> what do these scriptures teach us? You know, back up two verses. What do these scriptures yeah. teach us about the source of true joy? Class members could talk about how they have felt as parents, missionaries, church leaders, or teachers when they knew that the people they taught were walking in truth. You might contact a few class members before class and ask them to bring pictures of people they helped bring unto Christ and tell about their experiences. Okay. So, um, yeah, there's really not, I don't know. I don't know how much you've got on this section, but there's, there's just obviously the the question that we're going to ask a couple of just fundamental questions is what is truth in an LDS worldview? Um, what, what do you know is absolute and certain and unchangeable, uh, you know, even referencing some of the, the, uh, lessons or, or, uh, podcasts that we've done on Mormon doctrine and the yeah. changes that have occurred throughout the history of the LDS church, how things that have been conveyed as true and part of their doctrine have changed. And so how do you deal with that as the truth changes? How do you know if you're walking in truth? Is there even such a thing as truth in an LDS worldview? If you really knock it all down to the bottom level, um, those are just the sorts of questions that, that would be coming up in my mind. And of course, from our perspective, we do believe that there is an absolute uh, testimony of truth that, Christ himself, in fact, is the truth, and that we know truth as we come to know him, and we know him through the revelation that he has given in the Bible. And so we do have an objective standard that we can go to, an absolute authority of truth that we can go to in a way that an LDS worldview doesn't and historically hasn't, even though they may, of course, give the perception that they do in the way that they talk about things here. So do you, you have anything on this section, Skylar? I, not really. I, I have more on the divine love point. Cool. Yeah, so we've got a few minutes if you want to back up okay. and, and cover some of the divine love points. So this is, again, going back to that first section. We didn't know if we're going to have time to hit on it. But Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ are perfect examples of light and love. So we did hit on the light point, yes. obviously, but um, certainly the book of First John has a lot to say about the love of God. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, I'll just read some from uh, starting uh, in, well, chapter 4, verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and and his love is perfected in us. Um, boy, they don't cover uh, verse 12, do they? And, uh, no one has ever seen God. Yes. Um, anyway. Right. 
And so they say it in their lesson uh, in the seminary manual for teacher, what can I learn? Sorry, where can I learn more about God's love? Consider studying President Russell M. Nelson's 2003 Ensign article called Divine Love. I wanted to kind of give an outline and give some quotes from this um, and insights into the, the Mormon worldview and how they talk to themselves, right, in a way that's often obfuscating some of the threads that we would want to land on and unpack. But I would say just right, right at the start that I would recommend for everyone that wants to understand differences between how Christians um, approach this subject and how Russell Nelson, the current prophet of LDSism, approaches the subject is to read this article, Divine Love, Russell Nelson, and then to read The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God by D.A. Carson. They're both short, and they both are dealing with um, how to balance. Um, well, I don't think Nelson is trying to balance all of the Bible in any way, but he's certainly trying to balance uh, Mormon uh, teaching on the issue and uh, trying to counter what we run into all the time, uh, which is if you talk to people that are LDS, they will often say God's love is unconditional. And according to Nelson, quote, while divine love can be called perfect, infinite, enduring, and universal, it cannot correctly be characterized as unconditional. It cannot correctly be characterized as unconditional. That's the LDS prophet. So if you're LDS listening, I challenge you to consider what who you claimed is a prophet said on the topic um, and maybe stop with this unconditional love stuff. Yeah. Now, um, I yeah, and yeah. to be fair, sure. Um, Christians often will use that sort of language mm-hmm. as well mm-hmm. of God's love being unconditional. And one of the things that D.A. Carson does so well in this book is he does insert a number of helpful qualifications to show that a right Christian understanding is that, yes, in one sense you can say that of God's electing love, but in another sense it would be inaccurate and unwise to convey that God's love is unconditional, especially if you were talking about maybe somebody who is, well, I'll just, I'll just read a line here from, mm-hmm. from Carson. Um, he says, but it is certainly not true. Uh, it says God's love is unconditional is one thing you often hear. Doubtless that is true in the fourth sense with respect to God's elective love, but it is certainly not true in the fifth sense. God's discipline of his children means that he may turn up, turn upon us with divine, with the divine equivalent of the quote unquote wrath of a parent on a wayward teenager. Indeed, to cite the cliche, quote, God's love is unconditional, end quote, to a Christian who is drifting towards sin may convey the wrong impression and do a lot of damage. Such Christians need to be told that they will remain in God's love only if they do what he says. Obviously, then, it is pastorally important to know what passages and themes to apply to which people at a given point in time. Um, and he goes on just to make different qualifications. So, uh, yeah, it's something you see in, mm-hmm. in LDSism, but also sure. something that can be an issue in evangelical Christianity, I think, and not mm-hmm. being as nuanced as we need to be when we talk about God's love. And that's why Carson's book is called The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God. For sure. And I think he does a great job taking on all the sentimentality yep. of our time. Yep. Um, and I guess Nelson's trying to be the equivalent for the LDS community, yeah. but it's not sticking. I'm, I'm telling you, conversations... Um, 
Yeah, well, be- because when you're drifting towards universalism and this, oh, yeah. these sort of themes of theological liberalism of of he uh, loves everyone the same kind yeah, of stuff. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Yeah, you, and you've got to you've got to say those sorts of things in order to justify um, essentially not having a hell, not having wrath. Mm-hmm. You know, things mm-hmm. like that. So, yep. So he starts with, uh, of course, a dig at the Trinity, that these are loving personages, which is the Father and the Son. Once again, excluding the Holy Ghost. The Holy Ghost is not getting his Godhead status affirmed very often today. It's kind of weird. It's like the the LDS version of this, uh, what is it, the Psychomachicoi or whatever, the fighters of the Spirit or whatever. Um, and says, indeed, the Father and the Son are one in purpose and love. Now, notice uh, this is two beings who have love individually, committed to the great plan, what John A. Woodso calls the great plan, individually, right? Um, so they are not love ontologically in the way we can affirm in the Trinitarian relations of the Father, Son, and Spirit. They are, they have love. They've climbed Mount Fuji and are at the top. Now, he goes through these, uh, and we won't, we'll skip this part, but you'll notice how he speaks of perfection, infinity, enduring, and universality, and of course, through the Mormon lens. So now he comes to divine love is also conditional, right? So, um, he, it's the same line as the heading. It cannot correctly be characterized as unconditional. This is interesting. He then says, the word does not appear in the scriptures. Is this uh, the Mormon standard? How many terms do we hear uh, LDS use theologically all the time that don't have their words appearing in the Bible? Um, so it's kind of, <laughs> they'll say this with the Trinity, but then they'll import entire temple schemes. And it's just a, it's it's such an extreme double standard. I don't think they notice. It's so extreme. They don't notice. On the other hand, many verses affirm that the higher levels of love, the father and the son feel for each of us. They don't have, they confess divine passability The feel for each of us and certain divine blessings stemming from that love are conditional, are conditional. Um, He then shows uh, how in the scriptures, there's if-then statements, right? They can be written or implied. Written or implied. If certain conditions exist, then certain consequences follow. And of course, this is one thing he's not going to clarify is how many of those can we attribute to the way, the path? How much can we attribute to the personalities of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost? Three separate beings. He also shows in as much as, prove, if, accept, cannot. He then says, life here is a period of mortal probation, singular. Life here is a period of mortal probation. Our thoughts and actions determine, our thoughts and actions determine whether our mortal probation can merit heavenly approbation. Next time, if you're an LDS, you use this term, or you're a Christian and you're speaking to an LDS and they use the term grace. Remember this line. (laughs) This is a good one. It's our thoughts and actions that determine that. He couldn't do it for you. He then cites many scriptures, uh, declare verses, he says, uh, declare the conditional nature of divine love for us. Now, the conditional nature of divine blessings. It is equally evident that certain blessings come from a loving Lord only if required conditions are met. He cites DNC 8210. It's funny. This is almost a tour of our year. Mm. Let me read this. DNC 8210, I, the Lord, am bound when you do what I say, but when you do not what I say, you have no promise. Another one, 130.21, DNC 
There is a law irrevocably decreed in heaven before the foundations of this world upon which all blessings are predicated. And when we obtain any blessing from God, it is by obedience to that law upon which it is predicated. Um, he then says, the Lord declares, and then does a long citation of DNC 132, which as we have covered all year long, is the, the new and everlasting covenant is polygamy. So that's what it is. And of course, uh, Nelson now is a participant in that, in being sealed to more than one woman today. So he then shows tithing as an example of you pay your tithing, then these blessings are unlocked. Notice now, because that doesn't always happen for their LDS people, they're starting to say, well, it's not always a cause and effect eventually. So you, if you do this, you'll get that maybe. Yeah. And then we're not, we'll say it's uh, it's not our fault. We're telling you, well, don't shoot the messengers. It's Jesus who told us this. Then he'll say, why is divine love conditional? Why? Because God loves us and wants us to be happy. And then he cites a Joseph Smith letter. Happiness. Yes. Happiness is the object and design of our existence and will be the end thereof if we pursue the path that leads to it. And this path is virtue, uprightness, faithfulness, holiness, and keeping all the commandments of God. So if you do all that, then happiness will be uh, attained. And of course, he doesn't cite the context for this, which yeah. is... Well, as, what was the context of that quote, Skyler? Well, since I don't have time to get into all the detail, let me summarize it as this is a letter to Nancy Rigdon, 19-year-old Nancy Rigdon, daughter of Sidney Rigdon, which, by the way, I've been reading an excellent biography of Sidney Rigdon mm -hmm. uh, by Van Wagoner, but um, trying to pressure her into a polygamous marriage with him. Now, for those who say, oh, these marriages weren't sexual. Well, they already had the law of adoption. If all he wanted to do was tie her to himself spiritually with the priesthood power, he could have adopted her as a daughter. To say nothing of the fact that Sidney Rigdon is in the first presidency. <laughs> maybe he's, maybe she's fine. Yeah. No, he wants her, and she says no, and he writes this letter to pressure her in to a polygamist relationship. Yeah. I, I think it'd be worthwhile yep. just to read a little bit more of this to see, mm -hmm. you know, um, cause we referenced a portion of this, even I think maybe in the last podcast or a couple podcasts back, I can't remember where, but Joseph Smith writes, happiness is the object and design of our existence and mm -hmm. will be the end thereof. If we pursue the path that leads to it. And this path is virtue, uprightness, faithfulness, holiness, and keeping of all commandments of God. But we, we, but we cannot keep all the commandments without first knowing them. And we cannot expect to know all uh, or more than we now know, unless we comply with or keep those we've already received. That which is, now listen to this. This is what you, was this last week? I can't remember when you referenced this. I'm not sure. That which is wrong under one circumstance may be and often is right under another. Mm -hmm. God said, thou shalt not kill. At another time he said, thou shalt not destroy. This is the principle on which the government of heaven is conducted by revelation adapted to the circumstances in which the children of the kingdom are placed. Whatever God requires is right, no matter what it is. Now, remember, he's writing to try to persuade her to get into a polygamous relationship with, with him. Mm -hmm. Whatever God requires is right, no matter what it is, although we may uh, not see the reason thereof till long after the events transpire. If we yep. seek first the kingdom of God, all good things will be added. And he goes on from yeah. there. But uh, that just gives you enough of the taste of seeing that what he is doing is trying to manipulate this young 19-year-old girl 
uh, far younger than him into a polygamous marriage by basically telling her, you know, it may seem wrong to you, but it's right. And yep. it's, it's coming from God. Yep. And so we should be in this relationship and it's for the sake of happiness. Yeah. Uh, of course. His I, happiness. He, his happiness. Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> yep. Um, so yeah. I mean, anyway, <laughs> so that, that changes that. That's right. Re- that, that quote. that quote is referenced by Nelson. And I mean, he yep. knows the, the uh, context of that quote, it, it'd be shocking if he didn't. It would be. Um, you'd expect that, you know, he at least would take the responsibility of knowing it, um, even if he is using it recklessly. But one thing that you'd pointed out even before this podcast is that this quote has been used over and oh, over yeah. it's and one of over famous. again in general conference. Yep. And uh, yeah, just go read the letter yourself. The, the context mm-hmm. really is Smith grossly manipulating mm-hmm. Um, a young woman into a an adulterous yep. polygamous relationship. It's saying, "Trust me, I'm speaking for God." And we have other examples of letters, including burn this letter, um, trying to manipulate other teenage girls to, I guess, let him do what he wants. Yeah. So yep. now they'll continue. He continued. It's so funny. So he cites the polygamous DNC 132. He cites the uh, gross example of how evil the polygamous system was under Joseph Smith. Then he, he immediately goes, and th- that's the positive. And then he goes, our defense against false ideologies, mm. <laughs> which probably apparently don't include those. Yeah. And in one of them, he cites a book of Mormon character um, that as actually preaching universalism. And this is a good example of how Nelson is going to do, remember last time, right? You have to think simultaneously like a lawyer and a Gnostic with Mormonism. Mm-hmm. Every word distinction at any point can be utilized to make conceptual differences strategically. So clearly the Book of Mormon at the time in 1830 was understood as condemning universalism. But once you create the salvation exaltation distinction, now, <laughs> by you can infuse the term eternal life that's found in the Book of Mormon with exaltation language, and they aren't necessarily universalists when it comes to becoming gods. So now everybody has the potential to be, and that's the universalism aspect. Everybody will be resurrected, but according to your worthiness, will you uh, be at different levels of exaltation? Exaltations, really. Now, uh, sorry, trying to hurry along. Divine love in the sinner. Does this mean the Lord does not love the sinner? Of course not. Divine love is infinite and universal. The Savior loves both saints and sinners. And I just want the same. The Apostle John affirmed we love him because he first loved us. Talk about taking a verse completely out of context. and I'm, I'm not even sure what it's doing for him. Um, we know the expansiveness of the Redeemer's love because he died that all who die might live again. Once again, strategically here, reducing universalism to resurrection. Then he has a section, immortality and eternal life. God declared that his work and glory is to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of man. This is the Mormon equivalent of the Westminster uh, Catechism. Right? Thanks to the atonement, the gift of immortality is unconditional. See, there it is. And then he reads that back in the Book of Mormon passage above. That's why it's key to see that, mm-hmm. even though that was not the understanding of the time. The greater gift, though, oh, okay. The greater gift of eternal life, however, is conditional. Upon what? Is it upon the work of Christ, upon the work of the Heavenly Father, upon the work of the Holy Ghost, upon the work of Joseph Smith? In order to qualify, one must de- deny oneself of ungodliness. Just do that. Just do that. That's how you qualify. So which what's the inverse of that? One must affirm, right, become godly. 
right? Have all godliness. See that? So you have to deny oneself of ungodliness and honor the ordinances and covenants of the temple. Nelson continues, the resplendent bouquet of God's love, including eternal life, includes blessings for which we must qualify, not entitlements to be expected unworthily. Sinners cannot bend his will, which his, there's three. Sinners cannot bend his will to theirs and require him to bless them in sin. What's the, he doesn't say the inverse. Of course, earlier he just cited DNC 82, right? If you do what I say, I'm bound. Yeah. So, so who can bend God's will to theirs and require him to bless them in, in righteousness? The ones who don't have sin. And the fact he doesn't even say the inverse shows in his mind there's a possibility. What does John teach about those who deny <laughs> they've sinned? Now, he quotes a bunch. I, if we had time, I, I'll put, once again, I'll put the talk in. I recommend, you want to understand a huge difference? Read D.A. Carson, read Russell Nelson. But there is a GFS quote. He even quotes um, Spencer W. Kimball uh, saying, hey, if you have to keep repenting and repenting over the same sin, you can't expect forgiveness anymore. Yeah. Uh, and in fact, it is in DNC 82 that if you do the same sin again, the old sin returns. So even if you've repented, gone through the entire LDS repentance process, but then slip up again, all that old sin comes back. Yep. So you never know you're actually, until you're actually perfect and have earned the exaltation you hope for, you don't know. Yeah. Uh, so they do a lot of saying they know things, but they really where the Bible is clear about redemption, they don't know much at all. He then says, wrapping this up, given the imperfections we all have, individual initiative is imperative. Continuing, in climbing the pathway, once again, we've had ladders, we have pathways, we have the way, the pathway of repentance, both the effort and result count. This is key. I had a conversation recently in which this was not being affirmed. Apparently, for some, desire is enough, and they'll point to some cute Uchtdorf quote or something. No, no, no. Here's your current prophet who's higher than Uchtdorf. In fact, he fired him from the first presidency, put him down to the 12. Let's see. Both the effort and result count. Both. Not just your desire. You have to live it. You have to be it. Yeah. <laughs> do, do you want, this is the LDS thing. Do you want a God the Father that isn't perfect? He just tried to be. It's like, do you want the doctor that barely passes medical exam or the one who got 100%? Well, in this case, there is no grading on a curve. You have to be perfect. Yeah. So, divine loves provides us with the pattern. This is how he ends the talk. And I, I just want to remember that. That would be a good one to add if you're like, Mormon theology in five points. Divine love provides the pattern. The more committed we become to patterning our lives after his, whose? Once again, he keeps saying this, his. Which one? After his, the purer and more divine our love becomes. Perhaps, so the more perfect you become, the better your love is, right? Perhaps no love in mortality approaches the divine more than love parents have for their children. There you go. There you go. Of course, God is also the father of lights. Doesn't mention that. Our children are to be taught the doctrines of the kingdom, to trust in the Lord, which one? Which Lord? There's at least two. And to know that they receive the blessings of his love by first obeying his commandments. This is your the LDS prophet talking to LDS parents. 
that they, this is one of the things they, they should teach their kids. You receive the blessings of his love by first obeying his commandments. Divine love is perfect, infinite, enduring, and universal. The full flower of divine love and our greatest blessings from that love are conditional, predicated upon our obedience to eternal law. God became God by obedience to eternal law, and so should you. And then he ends with a prayer that we may qualify for those blessings and rejoice forever. There's a word that's used throughout the Old Testament, and the meaning of it is certainly carried over. And the New Testament author's way of thinking, the word is chesed, mm-hmm. which is normally spelled hesed. But the word is a word that it's beautiful, it's complex, but at the heart it refers to God's steadfast love, particularly in the sense of his steadfast faithfulness to keep covenant with his people that he will uphold his end of the covenant. And it's amazing to see his chesed come through as you read throughout the Old Testament, as he remains faithful, even as his people remain faithless and mm-hmm. walk away and run away, and God continues to uh, to chase his people back down and, uh, and draw them to himself. And um, the amazing truth of the gospel is wrapped up in a God who is good on his promises to his covenant people to do what he said he was going to do and to make them a holy people, a people of his own possession, um, a people who will delight in him and bring glory to him on the earth. And ultimately, God had to provide the solution for our covenant disobedience, knowing that we never were going to be as obedient as we needed to be according to the covenant in order to be uh, maintained in a position of favor before him. He was always going to uphold his end, but we would fail and fail and fail because the covenant standard before a holy God is perfect holiness. It is perfection. And the truth is we couldn't be perfect. And that's why God sent his son, the father sent the son into the world to be the perfect Israelite who did maintain a perfect covenant obedience to the father. Um, Christ perfectly loved God and loved others throughout his entire life. And he did that in order that he would be able to offer himself as a sacrifice in the place of his people. As our covenant head, he offers up his life in our place, and God accepts his sacrifice so that in Christ, through faith in him, all who trust in him are delivered um, from our covenant disobedience uh, into his covenant righteousness. And so we gain the credit of his covenant obedience to us as if it were our own. And this is all fundamentally an aspect of God's chesed. It's his steadfast love toward his people that would lead him to do what John says here. And anyone who does not love God does not, or anyone who is not loved does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him, Yep, through faith in him. Mm-hmm. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, the wrath-bearing sacrifice for our sins. 
Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. Um, in that sense, God's love toward us has been unconditional um, because we didn't earn it. We, we, didn't, we didn't obey and we couldn't obey. The condition of his love has been satisfied in the perfect obedience of his son. And through the perfect obedience of his son, all who have faith in him are included into that obedience and therefore have the love of God aimed straight towards us rather than his wrath. Uh, that's the gospel, and that's something to rest in. Yes. I mean, it's amazing. And I, I, until this year, I hadn't realized how important the thief on the cross scene is mm-hmm. in seeing the worldview chasm between a Mormon worldview yeah. and a Christian worldview. Yep. Why can Jesus say, you will be today, you will be with me in paradise? He's literally dying on a cross, the thief, and Jesus, of course, but the thief is dying on a cross. He can't do anything good with the remaining moments of his life. All we know about him is a crime egregious enough, uh, robbers or thieves, I think is the word, lest I, I think, or something. All we know about this man is his, you know, some of the worst things he's ever done. <laughs> and Jesus says, no, to me, t- today, you'll be with me. Right? And it, they don't have a God who justifies the wicked, right? As it says in Romans 4. Yeah. Like even David, they have to say, well, because of sins, he lost his exaltation for now at least, right? Say, well, it doesn't apply to David. No, no, no. We, we view the Psalms of penit- the penitent Psalms um, very differently. Yeah. Uh, when Isaiah 1, he says, your skins be as scarlet, it will be as white as snow. Yeah. There's a declarative righteousness there that we see answered in the suffering Messiah to come later in the book. That God shows his love for us in that, quote, while we were yet sinners, while we were still sinners, God died for us. That's that's what's incredible about God's love, is that we were at our worst, and God expressed a love for a world who's the the last group that deserves the love of a perfect, holy, infinite being yeah. in Christ for his people. Yep. I'll tell you what, in honor of uh, you bringing up the thief on the cross, let's close with a little sermon clip from one of my favorite preachers, Alistair Begg, and uh, we'll just, we'll finish a little different. If you haven't heard this one before, you need to hear it, and if you haven't listened to Alistair Begg preach before, go look him up. He is a tremendous preacher, and I think you'll be blessed by being able to listen to this little clip here at the end. Without the preaching of the cross, without preaching the cross to ourselves all day and every day, we will very, very quickly revert to faith plus works as the ground of our salvation. So that to go to the old uh, Fort Lauderdale question, if you were to die tonight and, and, and you were getting entry into heaven, what would you say? If you answer that, and if I answer it in the first person, we've immediately gone wrong. Because I, because I believed, because I have faith, because I am this, because I am continuing. Loved ones, the only proper answer is in the third person, because he, because he. Think about the thief on the cross. And what an immense, I can't can't wait to find that fellow one day to ask him, how did that shake out for you? Because you were, you were, 
you were, you were cussing the guy out with your friend. You'd never been in a Bible study. You never got baptized. You, never, you didn't know a thing about church membership. And, and, yet, and yet, you made it. You made it. How did you make it? That's what the angel must have said. You know, like, what are you doing here? Well, I don't know. What, what do you mean you don't know? Well, because like, I don't know. Well, you know, excuse me, let me get my supervisor. They go get the supervisor ranger. So we have just a few questions for you. First of all, are you, are, you, are, you, are you clear on the doctrine of justification by faith? The guy said, I've never heard of it in my life. And, and what about, let's just go to the doctrine of scripture immediately. This guy's just staring. And eventually, in frustration, he says, on, on what basis are you here? And he said, the man on the middle cross said, I can come. <laughs> now, now, that's the, that is the only answer. That is the only answer. And if I don't preach the gospel to myself all day and every day, then I will find myself beginning to trust myself, trust my experience, which is part of my fallenness as a man. If I take my eyes off the cross, I can then give only lip service to its efficacy, while at the same time living as if my salvation depends upon me. And as soon as you go there, it will lead you either to abject despair or a horrible kind of arrogance. And it is only the cross of Christ that deals both with the dreadful depths of despair and the pretentious arrogance of the pride of man that says, you know, I can figure this out and I'm doing wonderfully well. No, because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free for God that justice satisfied to look on him and pardon me. That's why Luther says most of your Christian life is outside of you. In this sense, that we know that we're not saved by good works. We're not saved as a result of our professions, but we're saved as a result of what Christ has achieved. 